Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. just keep worshiping and worshiping and worshiping all day long. Uh, then eat some lunch and come back and worship some more. How does that sound? Um, Travis, for those of you who don't know me, it's so good to be together here today. Uh, and we have an opportunity once again as a family of God to come all into the same room and to hear from our God and to have him speak to us and his Holy Spirit who, for those of us who have surrendered to Jesus, have his Holy Spirit uh, speak directly to us through his word today. And that's what I hope he does for you. Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter seven? Have you guys ever known um, a projector? Like, not like the thing that, you know, projects on the screens, but like a person, maybe it's you, maybe it's someone else who, Everything that's wrong with them, they project out onto other people, right? And uh, all the problems that like everyone knows is true of them, they say of everyone else, right? I, I mean, I, if we're honest, I think we all do that a little bit, amen? Uh, come on, be honest. Amen, come on, come on, come on, come on. I do this, you know, especially like I'll be like disciplining my kids and, you know, man, she's... She's just, she just does whatever she wants to do and she doesn't listen to God and she's strong-willed and God's like, yeah, yeah? You done, uh, you done talking about yourself yet, Travis? You know, we, we are projectors, aren't we? And this is the situation that Stephen, uh, that we're gonna pick up and see Stephen, the, the first martyr of the church, his story, that's the situation he's in because he's surrounded by these men who are accusing him of the very things they are guilty of. They are projecting their guilt and their sin onto him. You see, Stephen was a deacon. He wasn't one of the apostles. He was a leader in the church, but he was a guy who, one of many that were entrusted to taking care of some of the the widows in the church so that they wouldn't go without food. So he's a regular guy given a very important task. And he's not just taking care of the widows, but he's, uh, pray, he's praying and doing miracles for people. And God is doing great things in his life. Great wonders and signs are being done through him. And he's preaching powerfully the gospel of Jesus. And because he was preaching Jesus, some of the religious elite of that day had decided that what he was preaching was blasphemy, that he was against God, against Moses, against the scriptures, against the temple, and they leveled all these accusations against him and, and, and they, they drag him before the Sanhedrin, which was a Jewish court, a Jewish kind of political but also religious court. And they bring false witnesses against him. They drum up, they get some people to just come in and lie about him because they want this guy gone, right? Can you think of anyone else, not too long before Stephen, that got some false witnesses called in against him? His name's Jesus, and they murdered him. So do you think Stephen, as this is happening, knows exactly what's about to happen to him? I think he did. But before Stephen is murdered, Stephen answers his accusers, and his answers are brilliant. 
there. But this is just an average dude. This is an average guy. And his answers to his accusers is brilliant. Only the Holy Spirit could take responsibility for such a wise and cutting answer that Stephen gives. Stephen seems to, in his response to these accusers, just give them a history lesson. He just brings them through the history of Israel from Abraham all the way to the present. And it may seem like just a boring history lesson, but it's not. In his answer, Stephen has worked in and woven in an amazing counter accusation against his accusers. And and he does this by calling some historical witnesses to the stand. They're putting Stephen on trial, but then he turns it around and brings witnesses against them and puts them on trial. He calls Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the scriptures, and even the tabernacle and the temple to come and testify against his accusers. And spoiler alert, this does not go well for Stephen, does it? And I want to say right from the outset, and have this in your mind as you're listening to Stephen's response and his reply. God's blessing and validation is not shown by keeping us safe, but by keeping us faithful. If you've bought the Western lie that God will keep you faithful by any means and also give you complete comfort and safety that your life's supposed to be comfortable as a Christian, that your life's supposed to be completely safe. If you've bought that lie, today is the day to let go of the lie, isn't it? Because God does not promise. Now, do we have moments and times and seasons of safety that God gives us comfort and gives us good things? Does, does God do that? Yes. James says all good gifts come from the Father. So yes, God will give us those seasons of safety and security, well-being. But they are seasons. And if we are faithful, Jesus promises that there will be many trials in this world. But take heart, he's overcome the world. So God's blessing and validation for you is not shown by always keeping you safe but by keeping you faithful because there's nothing better for you or for me than to get to the end of our lives having been faithful to our King Jesus no matter what it costs us to have him say, well done and good and faithful servant, enter into my rest forever. That's best case scenario for you. Not for you to be safe and comfortable now, but for you to be safe and found faithful then. Let's begin reading Stephen's response, and he's gonna call witness number one, Abraham, to the stand. Verse one of chapter seven. The high priest said, are these things so? These accusations have been leveled against him, false accusations. High priest in the trial says, are these things so? Stephen doesn't give him a yes or no. He answers this. Open up your history books. Let's see what God has to say about it. He addresses them respectfully and says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to Our Father, now I I want you to just put a little pin in that. And the number of times, I'll try to bring it out to you, but the number of times he says, our Father and our Fathers. Our Father, our Fathers. Because he's gonna do something really interesting with that at the end. Our Father Abraham was in Mesopotamia, not Israel, before he lived in Haran, which was not Israel. So to the Jews, the glory of God was in the temple. 
You know, God's presence is only in Israel, in the temple, in Jerusalem. And he's saying, look, God was with Abraham when he wasn't even here in Israel. And said to him, go out from your land, from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then Abraham went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land, Israel, in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length of land, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child yet. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring, the Israelites, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. That's the Egyptians. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place, Israel. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Jacob is the father of Israel in a way. And his 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel, the patriarchs, our fathers, Stephen says. This is easing into his argument. Stephen makes this point that without the temple, without a homeland, without his people of origin, God blessed Abraham. God didn't need a temple and he didn't need it to be in Israel surrounded by his family to be blessed. God blessed Abraham outside of Israel. Why? Because Abraham was faithful. Stephen implies this, that God is not tied to an earthly locale. He's not limited to an earthly locale. God's presence and work is tied to his people who remain faithful. You wanna find God? You don't look for a certain building or a certain city or a certain country. You look for the people who are faithful to him. That's where God is. Abraham, witness number one, testifies to the pattern that the people of God should always follow. God mercifully initiates relationship with people and those people ought to respond with faith-fueled obedience despite the consequences. Stephen, in that moment, is following that pattern of faithfulness. His accusers are not. And this is what he implies. Witness number two, Joseph. Remember Joseph with the amazing technicolor coat? His brothers get angry at him because his father favors him and they stage his death, though they sell him to slavery in Egypt. Remember that story? Verse nine. And the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. Where? In Israel? Where? Egypt. God was with Jacob in Egypt and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers, our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried 
back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. He furthers his argument, Stephen does, and he's saying this, just like Joseph, the one who faithfully carries on the mission of God is often the one who will be rejected and abused. See, it's so easy for us to assume that those who are doing well and those who are blessed, those who have a big corral of people beside them saying, yay, this person's great. We tend to think that's the one whom God is with and is blessing. But in the history of scripture, typically it's the odd man out that God is with and is blessing. Isn't it? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stood out and said, I will not bow to your God. What happened to them? Persecution. Isaiah, the prophet of God, who wrote one of the most amazing prophetic books telling us about the Messiah. History tells us that he might have been sawed in half as his reward for being faithful to God. John the Baptist, preaching repentance. What happened to him? Beheaded. So often, it is the one who is ostracized, the one who stands out, who is being faithful to God, the one who is rejected and abused. And Stephen is making this point that just like the brothers of Joseph were jealous of Joseph, So now in Stephen's day, the religious establishment were jealous of Jesus and put him to death for it. And now Stephen, standing and walking in the footsteps of Jesus, is the odd man out, is the one being rejected and abused, and it is proof that he is the one being faithful to his God, not his accusers. And so witness number two, Joseph, stands as evidence against Stephen's accuser saying this, Joseph was abused and rejected by the rest of the family of Israel. Joseph was the righteous one and his brothers were unrighteous. And so in this current trial of Stephen, between you guys, accusers, and Stephen, who stands in which place? Who emulates who? Stephen emulates Joseph. Jesus emulates Joseph. The accusers emulate the brothers, the unrighteous ones, the accusers. He moves on and calls another witness to the stand. Witness number three, Moses, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race, the Israelites, and forced our fathers to expose their infants, to put them out to die so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And then when he was exposed, remember his mother weaved a basket, put him in the river, sent him down the river so that Pharaoh's daughter would pick him up. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, Israelites, who were enslaved, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And on the following day, he appeared to them, and, and as they were quarreling, tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor, an Israelite, thrust Moses aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Was Moses standing in Israel? No, Midian. And yet it's holy ground because God is there. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you, Moses, to Egypt. So this Moses, whom they rejected, Israel rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Here's what Stephen is saying. Moses, chosen by God as a savior to Israel, was rejected by those he was trying to save. It fits the pattern, doesn't it? They should have accepted him. They should have said, yes, deliver us. But they rejected him. This is what happens to all of God's prophets. And so witness number three, Moses, shows that this pattern continues, that Israel missed and rejected their deliverer, the one whom God would use to save them. And so Moses stands in accusation of Stephen's accusers, testifying that they too, Stephen's accusers, have missed and rejected their deliverer, Jesus. You see what Stephen is doing? saying the past is repeating itself. Israel rejected their deliverer Moses and he saved them anyway. And now, in this very day, Israel has once again rejected their deliverer Jesus and yet he'll save them anyway if they will trust him. He brings another witness, witness number four, the scriptures, verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, an Israelite. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles, that's the scriptures, to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they returned, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He's been too long up on the mountain. We haven't seen him. He's probably dead. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me? Slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, 
a God who asked them to sacrifice their children on the altar. And the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Stephen furthers his argument by saying this, Moses, way back to Moses, he predicted that at a later time, God would raise up another prophet like himself. And we know that Moses was speaking of who? Jesus. There would be a truer and greater Moses who would come to deliver the people. Moses predicted it himself. And Moses' legitimacy as a prophet was attested to by signs and wonders. All the miracles God did in the, in the, in the wilderness in those 40 years, he did through Moses saying, this is my prophet, listen to him, do what he says, and believe in the one whom he speaks about. He was attested to by signs and wonders. Can we think of anyone else right around the time of Stephen's day that was attested to by God by doing signs and wonders? Yes, the answer again is Jesus. And then Stephen, following in Jesus' footsteps, has been doing signs and wonders. But in the face of all the miraculous evidence that Moses was God's chosen prophet to Israel, they chose to turn aside to false gods. It didn't matter that God was saying, Moses is my servant, listen to him. Here are the miracles that prove that I am working in power in him. Didn't matter, they chose to follow other gods. And the same was true for Israel in the day of Stephen. God had attested to the Messiahship of Jesus by the miracles he did, and they said, we don't want you. And so witness number four, the scriptures testify against Stephen's accusers once again. By rejecting God's chosen servant, Jesus, you accusers and you Israel have once again turned away from the true path of God, ignoring the very scriptures you say you believe. Now, lest you think that I'm just harping on Israel here, this is not anti-Semitism. Please don't hear that. These happened to be the people who were Uh, who got caught disobeying God in this time of history, and they had for a long, long, long time. But which one of our ethnicities wouldn't have done the same? Right? This is humanity in a nutshell. God reaches out in mercy and gives us a deliverer, and we say, I'll do it my own way. Any one of us would have been guilty of this, and so are Stephen's accusers. And so he brings a fifth witness Places of worship, the tabernacle and the temple are the witnesses in this next section, verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness. That's the tabernacle. This is a portable temple. Anywhere in the wilderness they were, there would be this place where they could go and the presence of God would visit there and they could be in communion with God. In the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, verse 45, in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. That's the temple. Not the temporary tabernacle, but a permanent temple. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You think you're going to keep me 
in a temple built by your own hands? You see, the tabernacle, this portable temple, and the temple, which was the permanent temple, are physical reminders that God desires to be with the human beings he created. It was a physical place on earth where you could go and experience his presence in a very physical way. But the people of Israel had wielded these places in order to contain and control God's blessings for only Israel. Instead of these being epicenters of sending so that the people of Israel would go out and fulfill the mission God gave them, which was to be blessed so that they could be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. No, they said, no, no, no. You have to come to Israel and to this temple, this specific city. This is where the presence of God is and he's nowhere else. They tried to control and copyright and trademark the presence of God into a limited space, the temple in Jerusalem. We do the same, don't we? We call this place the house of God sometimes, don't we? God's house, gonna go into God's house. This building is not God's house. This building could burn down. One day it will. You wanna know who God's house is? It's you. We are God's temple, living stones put together. The presence of God lives in us. If this place burned down, we'd be fine. God be fine. You can't burn down God's house because it's not a place made of brick and stone and wood and semi-comfortable pews. God's house is a people and it's a people that is sent on a mission We're not to keep his love and mercy and gospel in. We're supposed to give it out. And so often, like the people of Israel did, we squander it on ourselves rather than bringing it out. There is something deeply wrong when the people of God are not zealous for more people to know him. When we're just satisfied to be comfortable with our own Christian friends and our own Christian building and our own Christian lyrics and our own Christian music, And we have no fire of God in us for other people to know the king. There's something deeply and profoundly wrong with that. Because God is not supposed to be contained and owned and boxed by his people, but brought out to all the people of the world. Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, one here to show that God never intended to be limited to a building. Don't forget all the places that God showed up. He's already woven this through his entire argument. He showed up in Mesopotamia. He showed up in Egypt. He showed up in Sinai, in Midian, in the wilderness, outside of Israel. God shows up where the people of God are faithful to him. And so witness number five, the place of worship, the places of worship, the temple and the tabernacle, they testify against Stephen's accusers. They say, you disrespect God, you disrespect Moses in the scriptures by how you have misinterpreted and misused the temple as a place that contains God and keeps him belonging to Israel and not the rest of the world. The scriptures condemn that kind of thinking. And Stephen calls them on it. 
And now Stephen wraps up with his closing argument and he's about to get himself killed. And I think he knew it. I think Stephen knew very, and I don't know this, I haven't ever talked to Stephen, but I think Stephen knew where all this was headed. I, knew, I think Stephen knew that at this moment in time, he could have said something that would have exonerated him, who, that would have pleased the ears of his accusers, pacified them, or he could go the other way, be honest, say what was true to his death. I think Stephen knew exactly what the stakes were here. And look at his faithful response. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now look what he does. As your fathers did, so do you. What's he been saying up to this point? Our fathers. And now he's showing the fork in the road. We don't have the same fathers. As your fathers did, so you do. What did they do? Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's saying we don't have the same forefathers. He draws a line and he, and he draws a distinction between two sets of fathers and two sets of their descendants. Up to this point, he's been saying our fathers, our fathers, but now he's saying my fathers and your fathers. We do not share the same spiritual heritage. Set one of fathers and descendants. It's the faithful fathers who obeyed God, preached his word and pointed to the Messiah and ultimately bowed to God's Messiah, King Jesus, when he came. This is the family that Stephen and true followers of Jesus are in. He and others stand in a long line of God followers who are rejected for their faithfulness. That's his spiritual forefathers. What's the other set of spiritual forefathers? Set two, the unfaithful fathers and their descendants. Those who are self-deceived, thinking that by rejecting God's word, rejecting his prophets, and ultimately rejecting his Messiah, Jesus. They honor God by their blasphemy. Somehow they have deceived themselves into thinking that by rejecting Jesus and the way of God, they're somehow honoring the God that they try to serve. These accusers of Stephen descend from a family with a long history of persecuting the very ones that God is with. And it brings this very amazing truth into strong relief here. Please get this. Our spiritual heritage is not defined by our family of origin, our church affiliation, or even by our claims of belief. Our spiritual heritage is defined by who we actually trust and obey. You may say, I was born and raised in a Christian family. So what? You may say, I've, I've gone to First Baptist Cross Point all these years. So what? I'm a part of this club or that club or this church or that church when they suit me and fit me. 
So what, Stephen says. Your spiritual heritage isn't defined by the little associations that you are a part of or the line of blood family you come from. It's defined by the king you are faithful to. Stephen describes this unfaithful family by what he impugns his accusers with. He calls them stiff-necked. This is stubborn, unyielding, unbowing to God. Any of you have any like animals like horses or, or uh, oxes? Are there oxen in Modesto? I've, I've actually never ridden a horse. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm not very country. Uh, I've never ridden a horse, but I've been told that when you're on a horse, you know, what you're supposed to do is you put a, 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 what is it called, a bit and a bridle? Is that what it is? is, that what it is? Bit and bridle? Yeah. Horse people over here. Um, and, and then when you pull on the left side, it, what does it do? It turns its head this way and then they follow where their head goes, right? And then when you turn it right, it turns the head this way and they follow where their head goes. Stiff-necked is the idea of this animal that it doesn't matter how much you pull on one side or the other, they say, no, I'm fine going the direction I was. Their neck is stiff. You can't move them. You can't direct them. Stephen's saying, you guys are like a stiff-necked horse or ox that no matter how much the master pulls one way or the other, you just keep doing whatever the heck you want to do. You won't turn to the right or to the left based on his leading. He says this weird thing about their hearts and their ears being uncircumcised. That's weird. But it makes perfect sense. He's saying to them, you know, by God's law that says circumcise your sons. You obey outwardly and you circumcise your sons. But inwardly with your ears, what you're willing to listen to and what your heart is willing to change its will to do, there's no change. You do the outward thing, you follow the law outwardly, but in your hearts and in your minds, there's no obedience of God there. It's all flesh, it's all outer and none of it's inner. And he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And the force of how he writes it is, you always constantly, never stopping, resist the Holy Spirit. You don't listen to him. And he accuses them and he says, as your fathers did, so you do. You are the same religious mafia family who have been resisting and murdering the prophets since the beginning and you're about to do it to me. Not only that, but now you've actually betrayed and murdered the righteous one himself, Jesus. So Stephen's argument is this. To sum up, he says, you say that I dishonor Moses. You say that I dishonor the scriptures. You say that I dishonor the temple. But it is I and those who follow Messiah Jesus who honor God, his word, and the temple you should have ushered Jesus into as his throne room. Do you realize that the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be Jesus' throne room? They should have ushered him into the throne room and hailed him as king, but they pushed him outside of the city and crucified him. Stephen is saying, the very things you accuse me of is what you yourselves are guilty of doing. And he's got all of scripture to back him. So no wonder they responded the way they did. Verse 54. 
Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Remember that. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, not sitting, standing. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man, Jesus, standing, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, taking off their outer garments so they can get better throws in with the rocks. And they laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound like anyone else in scripture who was being murdered and, he, and cried out with the same kind of words? Jesus. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, get even with my accusers for what they're doing to me. Is that what it says? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that remind you of the last words of anyone else who recently died before Stephen? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's an interesting way to talk about someone dying, isn't it? Why did Luke write, he fell asleep? I'll tell you why. Because one day, Stephen was gonna get back up at the resurrection. For Stephen, death was not the end, it's a pause. Because those who are in Christ will be raised again. It wasn't the end, it's just sleep. And Saul, chapter eight, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now there's blood in the water. And they were all, the Christians, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here's the accuser's response to Stephen. It's not repentance, but it's rage. Notice the little detail, they gnashed their teeth at him. Interesting, Luke wrote Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, he quotes Jesus saying this of those who are outside of the kingdom because of rebellion from God. It says, there will be great weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is Luke importing that picture the very same people who will, at the end of time, have weeping and gnashing of teeth are now gnashing their teeth at Stephen. They don't answer his charges with a rebuttal, with, an, with a defense of themselves, but with violence. Nothing's changed, has it? Someone says something I don't like, and all bets are off. Why did they respond with violence? Because they had no defense. They couldn't use the scriptures 
to tell him he was wrong because he had just used the scriptures to prove to them that they were children and descendants of those who killed the prophets. What a contrast. Stephen, like the prophets, is full of the Holy Spirit. It says his face looked like an angel. He sees Jesus standing, not sitting, this is important, at the right hand of God. And here's the reality, the picture of this. A judge, when he was hearing a trial, would be in the seated position. That's a place of honor, it's a place of authority, a posture of authority. But when he was going to pronounce judgment over the accused, either judgment or acquittal, he would stand. And he would announce acquittal or judgment. So Stephen sees Jesus in the standing judge position about to give his judgment. And what is the judgment? Stephen is innocent. And Jesus is standing to receive him. There's another side to that, though. He's standing in judgment against the accusers of Stephen to say what you're doing is evil and it will not go unpunished. So him saying, I see Jesus standing about to give a judgment, they knew exactly what he was saying, I think. He's standing in judgment against you. You can do whatever you want to me. You're guilty. I think that vision that Stephen has is a foretaste for us today too, foreshadowing that final day when Jesus returns and ushers in his age to come. And for those who are faithful to him, he will stand and his judgment will be well done, good and faithful servants. We have so much to look forward to. And just like Jesus, right before his death, Stephen asked Jesus to receive his spirit and forgive his murderers rather than judge them. What a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus. And here in chapter eight, in chapter seven and eight, we meet a new character whose name is Saul. He watches over the cloaks of the murderers. He doesn't participate, but he approves. And then after it's done, what does he do? he's the one leading the persecution of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem and and, and elsewhere. This is a dark moment. It's a very dark moment with Saul's face on it. It feels very cinematic to me that as Stephen is giving up his life, Saul is standing, nodding his head in approval, saying, yes, yes, kill him, and I'm gonna finish the job with the rest of them. But this dark moment with Saul's face on it creates a beautiful literary backdrop to a beautiful future. A dark backdrop to a beautiful future because this Saul, this persecutor of the church would later become the apostle of Jesus, Apostle Paul. In this instance with his hate, Saul accidentally caused the spread of the world outside of Israel. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended? He said, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, that's the city, right? In Judea, that's like the county-ish, not really, but region that Jerusalem is in, Judea. In Samaria, another region, and then where? To the ends of the earth. Where does it mention that the believers are scattered into when Saul starts persecuting the church. 
they go out of Jerusalem to where? Judea and Samaria. And church, what's coming next? The ends of the world. Saul accidentally caused a brush fire, tried to stomp out the fire of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, and it spread the embers everywhere. And this persecution cannot stop the church. It emboldens the church. I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago, and he's been going through a very, very soul-crushing season of life. And he's had more pain, I think, in this season of his life than he's probably ever had. And yet, in this season of his life, he is finding God working through him for the sake of the kingdom more than he ever has. He looked at me and he said to me, Travis, do you wanna see where God is working? Look where all the hard stuff is and where all the pain, pain is. That's where God is working. You see, when Jesus finally captured Saul's heart and made him the apostle Paul, Paul would continue to spread the gospel to the rest of the world, but this time on purpose. I wanna say this to you. If Saul can become Paul, there is hope for every single human being who ever lived. You see, God answered Stephen's prayer, at least for Saul, he did. Stephen said, God, don't hold this against him. And Jesus said, I won't. I'll forgive him and I'll use him. It's beautiful. Just in reflecting on this sermon of Stephen's, a reflex can be in us to look at Stephen's accusers and, and our response be, what evil, horrible guys they should pay. And while that may or may not be true, that's the wrong response, isn't it? Or like me this last week, God hit me right between the eyes. I started to, in, in, in looking at this story, started to imagine other people around me who have been hard on me, who have been horrible to me who have rejected me and start seeing them in the place of Stephen's accuser and me in the place of righteous Stephen. Wrong again. See, we don't have to and we shouldn't ignore the brokenness and injustice in the world around us. But we have to deal with our own stuff first. As I was imagining all the people who have hurt me as the unfaithful God tapped me on the shoulder and said, son, what about you? Jesus commanded this in Matthew 7. He said, you must take the log out of your own eye before you try to deal with the speck in your brothers. It's not that we don't help each other through the, the hard stuff and the issues and the disobedience. It's just that there's a sequence that Jesus commanded. Me first, y'all later. I said earlier that God's blessing and validation is not shown by keeping us safe, but by keeping us faithful. If we want to remain faithful, we have to join God in his battle against our pride and our rebellion. We have to ask, am I joining God in his fight against my own stiff neck and my rebellion and my hard heart for the sake of faithfulness to my King Jesus? Or, like the rest of the world, 
am I watching and waiting for everyone else to go first? And so for us, the people of God, a Holy Spirit response to this, a Holy Spirit-led response to this is not to look at everyone around us and case them as Stephen's accusers. It's to let that be a mirror to look at ourselves and ask these questions. Father, how am I stiff-necked? Father, how am I resisting the Holy Spirit? How am I missing and rejecting Jesus, the very Savior that you sent to show me mercy? If you listen after asking God those questions for long enough, I'm pretty sure God will show you a place in your life or places in your life that remain outposts for the enemy. You do realize that even though you're saved, if you are, the enemy has some outposts set, set up in your will and your life and how you think and how you act. And Jesus in his mercy wants to destroy those outposts of the enemy, but we have to stop and let God answer honestly those questions to us and repent. And in his mercy, God will trans transform us into the opposite of Stephen's accusers. He'll transform us into a church that surrenders and embraces and welcomes Jesus' reign on earth despite the suffering that it will surely cause us. Do you really think that following Jesus will cause you no pain? Do you really think that the norm for those who follow Jesus in this world, both across the world and across time, do you really think that the norm is an easy life? I cannot cause Jesus' kingdom to come and his will to be done even a little bit by condemning those around me. Why? Because I don't have any control over their response to God. I can't do a darn thing about it. But I do have control over my response to God. And as God shows me the stubborn, rebellious parts of my will, and as I surrender those enemy outposts to him, I become that more, much more of an effective citizen for Jesus' kingdom. And then, as I walk with others, and God asks me to speak into the areas of their life that aren't yet submitted to Jesus, I can do so as a fellow struggler and an advocate, not an accuser. I want to do something we don't do a whole lot of in our culture, and that's have some silence. I don't want your mind to go to what's next or what are you eating for lunch or when are we, when's Travis going to shut up and let me go? I want to leave these questions on the screen. I want you to spend some moments starting this conversation with God. Not starting and finishing. This is not a three-minute deal. This is a start that I pray you'll maybe even take a picture of this and bring it with you and in your time with the Lord, be asking him to speak honestly to you on these. So just take a moment now, read these questions, begin asking them to the Lord Jesus and seeing what he begins to say in your heart and mind. Let's have some time of complete quiet to be with him.
King Jesus, we thank you for your love and mercy for us, but we also thank you for your honesty and your willingness through the Holy Spirit to speak truth to us. I pray that we would be a faithful people and that the part of that faithfulness is repentance, that we would repent of the ways we are stiff-necked, unsurrendered, resisting our King, and that you would change those parts of our lives, that you would bring into submission every part of our, our mind and our will and our emotions and our actions to be obedient to you and take the gospel of the kingdom to this entire globe. Jesus, keep working on us. We don't ask that you keep us safe. We ask that you keep us faithful. That's what we need. That's what we want. Do it in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.